If you have your Bible, uh, we'll be in Hosea chapter 11. And uh, while we're turning there, uh, let me set up what's going on, right? We're in the book of Hosea, which is one of the first minor prophets, right? He's not a minor prophet because he's under 18. He's a minor prophet because, you know, he's one of the first small ones, right? Because when you have books like uh, Isaiah, which has like over 50 chapters, having 14 makes you relatively small. So what's going on? And like all prophecy, prophecy only happens in Scripture when Israel has been unfaithful to the covenant, right? They've made an agreement with God many years ago. Mount Sinai, in the book of Exodus, I will be your God, you will be my And that covenant came. over again has been unfaithful. And so it takes place more specifically in the 8th century BC. And it's when the nation of Israel split into two kingdoms, right? See 1 Kings if you want more details on that. There's northern Israel known as Ephraim, whose pronunciation I will mess up on a regular basis. But northern Israel descended into chaos because of their abandonment to the covenant with God. And the first three chapters is all about Israel's unfaithfulness. In fact, the whole first 10 chapters is about Israel and faithfulness. It really set the stage, really set the tone of the book we're in. The first three chapters does a great job, right? Hosea is called by God, Hosea, I need you to marry a woman named Gomer. And here's the thing about Gomer, guys. She's as unfaithful as a spouse as it gets. Time and time again, she abandons her husband, runs off, sleeps with other people, and time and time again has to come back and it has to be redeemed by her husband. And God, at the very end of chapter 3, tells Israel, hey, you know what it's like being your God, Israel? You know what it's like being in a covenant with you guys? It's just like being in a, in a marriage with Gomer, right? Israel, that's how unfaithful you've been. How what it feels like to be in a relationship with you, Israel, is that you're as basically as unfaithful of a spouse as it gets. And by the time we get to chapter 11... God gives us a poem, and a poem that really reveals the very heart of God. Let us read it. Hosea chapter 11, starting verse 1, says this. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing the balls and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them by their arms, but they did not know I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness and with bands of love, and I became to them the one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to me to the Most High, he shall not raise them up. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Abdama? How can I make you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. 
They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt, like doves from the land of Assyria. I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Ephraim surrounded me with lies, and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. Let us pray. Dear God, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time just to pause, Lord, to, to reflect deeply on the word. God, Lord, I pray it's not just my words these people hear, Lord, but it's your truth, your wisdom that comes out of my mouth. God, give me the word to say, the truth to speak, Lord. And God, I pray that like James chapter 2, Lord, that we not just be hearers of the word, that God, we be doers. Lord, you in this chapter have shown great mercy to the people who don't deserve it. And Lord, let us live in that mercy, live in that forgiveness, and let that change us from the inside out. Thank you for this day. Thank you for this time. You send my pray. Amen. All right, so I want to ease your nerves for a second. One, yes, I did just read a whole chapter, and I know what a few of y'all are saying in the back of your heads. Great. We're definitely not beating the Methodist lunch, right? He's going over a whole chapter. He's not just going over a few verses. He's going over a whole thing. One, I promise this. I'll be concise. All right? I promise to not deeply, exegetically dissect this whole chapter, but to be concise and to the point. So speaking of that, point number one. Despite Ephraim's or Israel's failures, God still loves them as his child. Right? This poem opens with a giant metaphor where God describes his love for Israel. In the Exodus story, back in the book of Exodus, what is it? It's not just a story of God rescuing people, not just a a God just taking chains off of people who didn't deserve it. It's a rescue story. It's a story of God adopting for himself a people to call his own, setting them aside so that and putting them on one grand mission to be a lighthouse to the nations, to be representatives of God's grace, God's love, and God's mercy for the world. And they made a covenant, a legally binding agreement. I would make Israel his people, and Yahweh, their God. Right? And and the the author, I mean, God in this uh, poem goes as far to compare himself to a father who loves his son. There's a handful of activities God uses to describe his love for his people. One, he taught them how to walk. He picked them up by their arms. He loved them despite the ability to recognize it. Have you guys ever, like, tried to show affection to, like, really small children? You know, I think one of the things that makes it difficult for me, or at least something that I kind of get hung up on, is they will never show that affection back, right? When you're talking about showing affection to infants, two, three-year-olds, four-year-olds, right? They don't have the mental maturity to recognize all that you've done for them, right? They will never, or at least for at least a few more years, never be able to recognize fully what you've done for them, how you've raised them, how you've loved them, how you've cared for them. And yet God still loves them, yet good parents still love their children that way. He led them with kindness. You know, uh, verse 4 brings up the imagery of a rope that parents use to guide their children. He eased their burdens by taking it off of them and putting their own burdens on himself. And finally, he fed them. In these verses, verses uh, 3 specifically, he wanted to remind his people, he draws them near to him using compassion, not coercion. Right? This is how God gains favor with his people. This is how he expresses his love and his gratitude for them. 
compassion, not coercion, right? Let's compare a military ally and an empire. Allies in battle gain trust by supporting each other, by gaining each other's trust, by showing that at the end of the day, they have each other's backs, right? That's what good allies do. But know what empires do? Empires gain influence by conquering, by putting the weaker underneath them, right? So here God is showing us, look, I don't rule using coercion or brute force, guys. I rule out of compassion and love for you. A key part of God's character is revealed in this passage is that he rules and loves to win our affection using compassion, not coercion. There's another important detail worth noting in verse 2. Even though this, this was God's child, Israel was a rebellious one. Israel has been accused of being rebellious in this whole book. And what evidence does God give to support this accusation, right? He, they've, been, they've been accused. What's the evidence? Verse 2. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the balls and burning offerings to idols. So the charge is rebellion, and the evidence is this. One, not listening to instructions. Two, not following instructions. Three, sacrificing to other gods. And four, burning offerings to idols. Look, I think all the parents in this room can probably relate to the first two, right? Your kid's not either listening or two, not, not following instructions. And my prayer is, is that we don't have to deal with the second two, right? It's one thing to walk in, to, uh, get onto your kids for not taking out the trash when you ask them to. But it's also another thing to walk, walk in on your children uh, worshiping ancient fertility gods. So I hope that's something that you all never have to deal with, you have to wrestle with. But you know what? God had to deal with it. So, um, so here the point is Ephraim did all four of those things. Then they were saying one thing, right? We have four actions, but one statement. God, end of the day, I don't trust you. I don't want to bow to your authority. I don't want to listen to the rules you gave me. I don't want to be a part of this whole covenant thing we made. So the problem is, is because part of the, uh, the covenant made with Israel with Exodus, God made with Israel in Exodus, is that it's a covenant of exclusivity, right? You are my God. You, you will be my people alone. Now, a story that reminds me of this entire section we just read is um, a couple spent a better part of a year and a half to adopt a little nine-year-old boy. They went through the court system. They went through the adoption system. They worked hard, and finally, their family has been has a, had another member added to it, and they love this boy dearly. And a few weeks after the courts uh, finalized this adoption, um, the boy was playing, uh, was playing baseball in the front yard, and his parents told him, hey man, look, we love that you're playing baseball, but can we take it out to the field, right? Let's take it out to the field back. I don't, wanna, I don't want anything to break. And the boy doesn't listen, and it was his turn to bat. The ball's thrown, he swings, he hits, and boy, home run, right? But the ball doesn't exactly land in the yard. It lands in a window, breaking it. And in a panic, this little boy who just got adopted runs away. The local police and the parents began to search for him desperately. His adopted father and a police officer find him a few away from the very adoption agency where they got him from. And the father, walking up to his son, says this, why, why would you run away? What made you think you couldn't come home and talk to us? And the now sobbing boy said to his dad, you know, I figured you'd be so mad at me for not listening, 
that you'd send me back. So I wanted to save you some hassle, and I was just going to take myself back here. And the father, now holding his sobbing nine-year-old son, told him that he loves his son far more than he cared about that window. Right? The problem is that he didn't listen, and a window got broken. But remember this. The broken glass was an inconvenience. But the father loved his son far more than he did a simple glass pane. I mention this because, look, we've all sinned. We've all run away, right? I think we've all made similar statements to that in verse 2. I don't trust you, God. I don't want to give you my life. I don't want to follow your ways, God. Here's the thing. We don't have to run away from it. Do not run away from God when he has gone through so much pain just to call you his own. This brings us to point number two. This tough love comes with a tough lesson. Verses five through seven. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. Verse 5 is about God telling them, look, I'm not totally going to abandon you. I'm not sending you back to Egypt. But at the same time, you're not getting off the hook scot-free, right? In fact, verse 6, God tells them he's going to allow some of the very things that they held near to versus God. He will allow those things to be destroyed. So in the early parts of Hosea, right, um, one of the, in verses, uh, sorry, chapters 4 through 10, God gives up a bunch of complaints he has against Israel, right? They've sinned, they've broken the covenant, and here's why. And part of the problem God has with his people is that they've trusted in a bunch of military alliances to uh, secure their stability, right? They trusted in their politics versus God. Doesn't that sound a little familiar to you guys? Someone trusting in what happens in Washington versus what happens in the very church to provide for them? Here's the thing. We can very easily fall into the same trap Israel did. Because back then, they lived in a very chaotic, very turmoil time. And it was a very chaotic world. And instead of turning to God, they turned to their politics. They believed if we got the right combination of tax policies, the right combination of military alliances, we got the right combination of the correct political leaders in office, we'll be fine. They did that instead of turning to a most high God who was truly in control. And so, what does God do? He hands them over to the very things that they thought they could trust. He hands them over to Assyria. He hands them over to foreign occupiers, which is one of the greatest fears Israel had as a nation. They remember how bad Babylon was. They remember how bad Egypt was. Instead of turning to the one who rescued them from all those situations, they turn away from God, and they turn to their politics. Look, the... Christians today, we can buy into a pretty cheap lie that if we just get the right person in office, we get the right political policies in Washington going, if we get the right people on the city council, all of life's problems will be solved. That's not true. Don't think politics can save us from the mess we're in. Because first and foremost, the mess we're in is because of sin, not political alignment. Don't think 
just because you voted for the right party or the right candidate, that's going to save this country. The only thing that will save this country is if we follow the greatest commandment Jesus gave us. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the only thing that can save us. Faith and trust and obedience to God and the work he's done and is doing to this day. That's the only thing that can save us, right? Do not fall into the same trap Israel did. Because populism, politics, the idea that just correct political alignment can save us is a cheap lie that the world offers. And finally, verse 7 is a reminder of a theme that takes place throughout Scripture. Man sees the outside and is easily fooled. But here's the thing. God sees the heart and is not so easily fooled. Israel in their hearts were bent away from God. Look at verse 7. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up. Right? With their mouths, they were honoring God. They were saying prayers. They were talking about the scripture. But here's the thing. God saw what was really going on underneath the hood, and they were bent away from him. Right? Do not think just because you're here on, the, on most Sundays you are in line with God's will for your life. Do not think because you pray once or twice a week or say, open the word thinking that you are pleasing God. Look, the only thing that can please God is a sanctified heart. Romans 8. Right? Those who are of the flesh cannot please God. For, right? Do not think you're pleasing God just because you're somewhere doing something. God wants you, not your actions. brings us to my third and final point. Instead of choosing wrath, God chose redemption. Verses 8 through 12. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Abdama? How can I make you like Zeroboam? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion when he roars. His children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies in the house of Israel with deceit, but Judah still walks with God and is faithful the Holy One. By this point in the passage, it should be clear. God is very upset with Ephraim, northern Israel. They've rejected and rebelled against God. If you have any doubts about God's burning anger towards his people at this point, read chapters 4 through 10, right? Once you've read those chapters, there should be no doubt in your mind. God has a problem. Yet, God cannot bring himself to give Ephraim what they so justly deserve. His compassion prevents him from executing his wrath. As one commentator puts it, Ephraim was in sin and guilty before God. Yet, he says, how can I give you up? Justice demands that he do this. Yet, in his heart, he must find a way for salvation. In this, God sends Jesus Christ. And on the cross, Jesus was given up in our place. He simply doesn't want to destroy Ephraim like he does the cities of Abdullah and Zeroboam, like in the time of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Uh, verse, uh, yeah, verse 8. How can I make you like Abdullah? How can I make you like Zeroboam? Those are two cities that God's wrath burned so hot against, he destroyed them. 
They were totally out of God's will. They complete total rebellion. And what does he do? He gives them what they deserve. Total and utter destruction. And yet he can't bring himself to do the same thing to Israel. His heart, his compassion prevents him. Instead of destroying Israel, God promises to bring them back. As much as God desires wrath, he desires mercy much more. He much rather see redemption than punishment. Uh, look at the second half of verse 8. My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. God's compassion isn't just some simple emotion he experiences. You know, oftentimes when we think of compassion, I, you know, personally, I first go to like, you know what, he's had a bad day. I'll be nice to him. Or you could be walking down the street one day and you see a homeless man, right, down on his luck. And you say, hmm, you know what, I've had a good week. I'll give him 20 bucks. The kind of compassion that God shows in this verse is the kind that makes his heart literally recoil. It moves his inmost parts. Think of Israel causes God's angry and just heart to become warm and tender. Not because he's easily swayed, because this is just who he is. Look at verse 9. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man. The Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. How does God show his mercy to these people? He's not executing his wrath. Look at the last line in that verse. I will not come in wrath. But how does God come to people? Well, eight centuries later, God comes to his own people in the form of a baby, in the form of Jesus Christ. This is God's love and his mercy to the world and Israel shown, made, shown to us. This is God's love made manifest. Jesus in the second half of this chapter, and the implications of this chapter is what shocked me the most. A few months ago, I was drawn to this passage in my quiet time because of the shocking implications of this chapter. And if you only hear me say one thing this morning, please, now is the time to listen. What God couldn't do to Israel, the people who deserved it, who deserved to be destroyed, he does to his own son. What God couldn't do to Israel, the ones who are guilty, he does to his own son. I remember as one person put it, Jesus became like us so that God could treat us like him. What he couldn't do to Israel, he poured out on his own son. Because um, let's, let's, let's look at this from a much wider perspective, right? This whole situation. Romans chapter 1, God declares the, uh, Paul declares the whole world guilty of sin. They, the whole world has lived in abject rebellion to what God's will for their lives were, what his, will, what his desire for creation was. The whole creation has rebelled and now is guilty of sinning. And then Romans chapter 2 comes around, and it's about Israel. And what is God, what does Paul pronounce about Israel? He pronounces them even more guilty. Why? Because they had the law. Israel should have known better. Israel, God made a covenant with. Yet, they still rebelled. So not only is Israel just guilty, Paul labels them over and over again as more guilty of sin because they had the knowledge of God and should have known better. 
And one thing that just draws me to this passage over and over again is that it's a microcosm of a larger biblical narrative, right? Here's one thing as a theologian and author Christopher Wright puts it. The Bible is a book about redemption with the main character being Jesus. And what he means that by that is that the Bible is one grand narrative of God's master plan to redeeming a fallen creation. And look, just the same way Ephraim turned from God, you and I are guilty of doing the exact same thing. We've all refused to listen to God's call in our lives. We've all refused to follow God's order he's made for us. And yet, instead of choosing wrath for his creation, he chose redemption. He chose to send his own son so that he who became sin, uh, yeah, he, he who knew no sin became sin in order that we might become the righteousness of God. The Bible is about redemption, and it comes with an invitation. It comes with an invitation to join God in his master plan to redeem the whole world. And so, do not see this passage as just one simple act of mercy, right? Israel, Ephraim, you deserve it. You deserve to be destroyed. You deserve to be cast away and set apart from me. Yet God refuses. His compassion prevents him from giving Israel what they deserve. Instead, he chooses to redeem them. And this isn't a one-off act of mercy. It's a mirror it's a magnifying glass into God's very heart for the master plan for the world. He loves us so much that he sends his own son to die for us so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Do not look lightly on the mercy God has shown us. Because here's the thing. We can look at this passage and be like, yeah, God's pretty good at forgiving. It's kind of his thing. Don't look so lightly on the, on the mercy God shows us Because look what it does to his heart. His heart recoils within him. It causes him to turn so heavily. Don't look so lightly on the mercy God has shown us. Because we do not deserve it. We are very much guilty of the wrath God has. Yet, instead of choosing wrath, God chose redemption. So there's a few ways we all can respond to this passage. One, if you do not know Jesus... Realize this, you've been shown great mercy. All you have to do is accept it. All you have to do is confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved, Romans 10. But if you do know Jesus, just like the parable of the unforgiving servant, realize this. Not only have you been shown great mercy personally, now the expectation is to show mercy on others. Don't take so lightly the lesson learned in this passage. Don't take so lightly that you've been forgiven. No, just as you've been forgiven, I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, forgive others. Allow your compassion to prevent you from striking others in anger. Allow your compassion to determine how you respond to life's chaos and life's turmoils. Respond to the world in compassion and love, just as Jesus showed to us. Thank you guys for listening. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for this day. Thank you for this chance just to stop and to really reflect on the nature of your heart. Lord, Hosea chapter 11 shows us something so important about you. You chose compassion above all things. You looked at us guilty. 
You looked at Israel, who was even more guilty. And instead of destroying us, you loved us. You loved us to the point where what you couldn't do to Israel, you did to your own son. And God, thank you so much for this reminder, Lord. I pray that we as a people respond to this revelation of your love and your mercy for the world. God, I pray this time is fruitful for your kingdom, Lord. Let us not just walk away apathetic, but compassionate. God, allow us to respond to the calling, Lord, to love you and to give our lives over to you, Lord, because you have given your own just for us. God, thank you so much for the time that we've had just to fellowship, to worship, and to study. But God, I pray that you draw your people close to you, Lord, and that we respond. And we just not walk away the same. But Lord, but like every person that encountered you personally, that we walk away changed forever, Lord. Jesus, do my pray. Amen.